Hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Friday, July 21st, 2023, and this is Episode 2 of our new segment, Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. And I've got a whole list of questions that you have been emailing me. Thank you so much for that, by the way. Uh, I love our listeners. You have some of the best questions, uh, some of the kindest, most encouraging emails we get. And I've got a whole list here. We won't get to all of them on this episode, but we will do another one uh, here shortly. My plan is to post these episodes uh, periodically as I get a list uh, that's long enough to handle uh, one full episode or to fill up one full episode. So we'll be uh, starting that here in just a second, but I want to mention a couple of quick notes. Uh, first of all, we actually have two podcasts today on this Friday, July 21st, later on this afternoon or maybe closer to the evening for those of you on the East Coast, I'll be posting my interview with uh, Dr. Thomas Ice on debunking lies about the rapture. And you won't want to miss that. I can't wait to pick his brain. Uh, there are so many lies out there that uh, people who don't believe in the rapture have perpetuated. Most of them don't realize they're perpetuating a lie, uh, but it's easy enough to do your own research and and uh, kind of put those lies to rest. And that's what we're going to be doing with uh, Dr. Ice. So watch for that one to drop Later today, and then tomorrow, we'll close out this week with a, a first edition of a new Saturday podcast that we're launching on preparation, preparedness, uh, how to prepare for an EMP or cyber attack is what we're going to be talking about tomorrow with my guest, Randy. Randy, of course, is our weekly guest on Wednesdays with World Events Update, uh, but this is a special limited series that we're going to be doing on different topics for uh, preparedness. So look for that to drop first thing early tomorrow morning, and I hope you'll listen to that and it'll benefit you as well. It's been a great week, lots of great podcasts uh, this week. As I mentioned, episode one of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions was uh, posted on Monday of this week. Tuesday, we had Prophecy Night, uh, one of the better Prophecy Nights that we've had, just really packed with great questions and great uh, discussion about the rise in anti-Semitism. And then Wednesday, of course, was World Events Update with Randy, as I just mentioned. Encourage you to go back and check that out. And yesterday, we had Dr. Nathan Jones on to talk about the mighty angels of Revelation. Uh, so today, we're going to answer some more of your questions. Let's get uh, right to it here I, in no particular order. And by the way, sometimes I will mention the name or just initials or something like that. I want to be careful about giving people's names because even though we do announce on our website that these questions that you send in are going to be answered on air, I think some people still just don't even realize we have this particular podcast where, where I answer your questions, and they're just sending in email questions, and I don't want to use people's names if I can help it if they are not aware that we're going to be doing that, but most of the time it's just a first name anyway. I doubt anybody could trace it back to you, but uh, here's a question from a listener that says, uh, how can biblical teachers believe and teach very confidently that Second Thess chapter 2 is speaking about the apostasy as a falling away spiritually of the church and not speaking about the rapture? Uh, this writer, this listener says there's no sign for the rapture, so how could they actually believe that there, the implication here is that there's going to be a sign such as a spiritual falling away before the rapture? So a couple of things uh, I would say to this uh, question. First of all, Second Thess 2, while it is talking about the rapture in my estimation, it's not giving signs about the rapture. Uh, the point of Second Thess 2 is the readers there, the, the, the original audience, the Thess Thessalonians, thought they were already in the day of the Lord, that 
the Old Testament prophets have talked a lot about that that uh, you know difficult uh, seven year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, known as the tribulation. Uh, it's the it's the seventieth week of Daniel, a week being a seven year period. The Hebrew word Shabuah, and so they thought because of some of the persecution they were facing that that day had already come. And Paul writes to assure them that that day cannot have come unless a couple of things happen first. One of those is the uh, unveiling of the Antichrist, the man of sin that Paul goes on to discuss in, in the 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, it's one of the key passages that give us information about the future beast, the Antichrist. Uh, but the other thing that Paul says has to happen before you can be in the day of the Lord is the apostasia. Now, I've written an article about that. Others have too. Uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Andy Woods, has an extended little booklet about it. Uh, and I hold the view that the apostasia in that passage refers to a physical departure. Remember, words have to be defined in their context. Uh, and the, the lexical or dictionary meaning of the Greek word apostasia just means departure. And that can mean a spiritual departure from the faith, but it can also mean a physical departure from point A to point B. And I think contextually the best view is that it's a physical departure. I had an interview with Mondo Gonzalez from Prophecy Watchers a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that one. He takes a, a different view that's also consistent with the biblical text, and it's very intriguing. So I wouldn't die on the hill that apostasia refers to the rapture uh, as being required, you know, uh, before these folks could have been in the day of the Lord. Um, but that's what I think the best evidence supports, uh, you know, contextually and lexically there. But either way, uh, I would say, you know, the, the passage is not giving a sign of the rapture. It's giving signs to, to indicate whether or not you are in the day of the Lord. Has the day of the Lord come, the, the great day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year tribulation? And it won't come unless you have the unveiling of the man of sin first when he signs the, the peace treaty there. And in my view, until after the rapture, or if you take the spiritual apostasy view, it means that prior to that time, there's going to be this great end times apostasy. So hope, hopefully that helps you uh, explain that passage in a little more uh, detail. Uh, again, in no order here, I'm just kind of ticking through a list of uh, some 20 or more questions that I've got set aside for today's episode. Uh, this is Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions, episode uh, two. And this is just a comment from a listener who pointed out that a article that I wrote referencing uh, a story about an AI, uh, that military AI uh, uh, test that they were doing or exercise that they were doing where the AI turned on its operator and killed him in the, in the simulation, you know, the, the fake operator. Uh, and they had come across something that indicated that story was false. Well, I researched that pretty well. In fact, I even mentioned in the article that shortly after this one uh, military official kind of blew the whistle, I think it was in a tweet about what had happened, the, the official uh, you know, spokesperson for uh, the military came out and said, no, 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 that didn't really happen. That was not true. Uh, but I have heard the guy interviewed and listened, you know, read some of the transcripts from the interview, and he absolutely stands by the fact that that is what happened. So I think there's just a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and depending on which story you read, you have to be very careful. There might be other stories out there that uh, give you more details and either debunk or affirm the truthfulness of a particular story. Uh, here's a question uh, from Wisconsin. The person says, uh, if the fallen angels had children with human women and produced giants, she's talking about the Nephilim here, 
uh, and these giants all died in the flood, then why are there giants after the flood? So yeah, I get this question a lot. We've talked about it. The reference here is to Genesis chapter 6, uh, where the fallen angels came down to earth uh, in the form of men, took on human physicality, slept with the daughters of men or women, and, and, and those women conceived and had a race of uh, children called Nephilim, which were hybrids. They're not human. They're not redeemable. They're not made in the image of God. They're not actual humans, but they are hybrid beings. And uh, the text clearly tells us in Genesis 6-4 that those Nephilim existed after the flood as well as before the flood. So how could that happen? As I've explained in other podcasts and messages, there's a couple of ways this could have happened, a couple of uh, logical explanations for how you could have Nephilim after God destroyed the earth with the flood. The first option is, you know, additional fallen angels committed the same atrocity that the ones that were spoken of in Genesis 6 did after the flood, because the angels uh, aren't destroyed. In fact, there never will be a time when angels, good or bad, are destroyed. They are permanent. They will either spend eternity in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, as Jesus tells us at the end of the age, or they will spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth with God and the Godhead and, and, and the church and Israel and all believers. So, uh, they weren't destroyed and can't be destroyed. Uh, the ones that originally committed this atrocity dis discussed in Genesis 6 and also in Jude and also in Second uh, Peter, uh, they were uh, sent to prison permanently awaiting their final judgment uh, at, the end of the, at the end of time. Uh, Peter talks about them being in Tartarus, permanently imprisoned uh, there. The book of Enoch also uh, talks about uh, this, even though the book of Enoch is not inspired scripture, it kind of, in this case, actually agrees with what scripture tells us about those angels. But there's nothing that would preclude another set of fallen angels trying to do the same thing after the flood. So that's one way we could end up with Nephilim after the flood. But my view is that uh, because Nephilim are hybrid beings and can shapeshift back and forth between uh, temp you know, temporality or physicality, uh, material beings with flesh and blood, and spirit beings, then when the fl flood came, they simply... <clears throat> Uh, shapeshifted into the spirit realm, rose above the flood waters, and came back down after uh, the flood waters. Again, the flood only destroyed every physical living thing on earth other than righteous Noah and the animals that he had on the ark. It did not kill uh, spirit beings or hybrid beings. So that answers uh, uh, that question, or I hope it does anyway for you. Uh, here's a question from a listener, not sure where they're from. Uh, it says, where do the survivors that come out of the tribulation go when the earth is burned with fire to clean things up and start the millennial era? So I think there's some confusion here in the question. The burning up of the earth doesn't take place till the end of the millennial phase of the kingdom. That's when the old heaven and the old earth are burned up with fire. Peter talks about this. Um, and the old heaven and old earth shall be no more. It's under the curse of sin. God recreates a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the millennial phase of the kingdom. And then uh, we, and that's when the great white throne judgment happens. And, that's, and at that point, all unbelievers of all ages are cast into the lake of fire for eternity to be tormented day and night forever. And then... Um, 
you know, after that, uh, we go perpetually into the new heavens, the new earth, where there's no sorrow, sadness, night, sin, anything like that. Uh, so that's when the burning up happens. But to his question, or this person's question, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman, uh, as to whether or not, or as to where the survivors that come out of the tribulation go. So there are two classes of people at the end of the tribulation, as there is at any time, and that is a group of believers and a group of unbelievers. At the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back to establish the millennial phase of the kingdom, all unbelievers are uh, you know, uh, cast into the everlasting fire at that point, awaiting their final judgment into the lake of fire. And all believers actually inherit the kingdom, and they're the ones that enter the kingdom and populate the earth in their physical bodies. And so um, that's where, you know, the, I assume he means by survivors, the believing survivors, uh, they don't have to be you know, taken off the earth for some type of purging by fire. That purging by fire does not happen until the end of the millennium. So in, when the millennium starts, you've got all uh, resurrected believers of all ages. That includes those who died in the tribulation. That includes the church. That includes Old Testament saints. And then you've got f believers in their physical bodies who have never died. And these are the ones that survived the tribulation. They didn't get martyred. And they're also the ones that then repopulate the earth during the millennium. Uh, but that happens immediately after the tribulation. There will be a cleanup, of course, from the devastation of the Battle of Armageddon, um, and so that's you know obvious that people will have to kind of vacate the the construction zone, if you will, during that time. But they won't have to leave the earth uh, per se. Uh, this next question uh, is: Would you please expound on the difference between salvation and redemption? Great question. So. Uh, you know, I taught soteriology for many years at the college and graduate levels. It's one of my driving passions. In fact, my first book was on the subject of the gospel called Getting the Gospel Wrong. And uh, there are many key terms in Scripture that relate to the, the concept of eternal salvation and that are part of the big picture theologically, things like reconciliation, regeneration, redemption, uh, justification, um, you know, many different uh, terms like that. Uh, and I discuss these in, in my uh, book. Redemption is one of those words. The word redemption means bought with a price. And Jesus Christ bought our salvation with his shed blood. He paid the penalty for the sins of all mankind. And so the, the price has been paid. Uh, now, just because the price has been paid does not mean that everyone on earth automatically goes to heaven because he he purchased salvation with his shed blood as a gift to then freely offer to anyone on earth who will simply receive it by faith. But as with all gifts, it has to be received. You can't simply uh, you know, force a gift on somebody. If someone doesn't want the gift, you can't force them to take it. And so Jesus redeemed mankind. The price has been paid. The penalty has been paid. Uh, and now he offers that payment uh, on your behalf, if you will simply receive it. If you reject that payment, then you're not going to go to heaven. Uh, if you've rejected Christ, if you've never trusted in him, uh, he didn't force you to sin. We sin of our own free will, and we must receive the gift of salvation of our own free will. We're not forced to be saved. Uh, so that's what redemption is. He paid the price. It it's, deals with the atonement. That's another key word related to salvation. He paid the atoning sacrifice as our substitute on the cross. Uh, but redemption means bought 
with a price. Salvation, the other word that this uh, listener asked about, uh, is a general term in Scripture that just means delivered. And uh, as I said a moment ago, all words in, you know, have to be defined by their usage. Uh, actually, more than a half of the time, the word save in Greek, which is the word sotzo, the verb, uh, has to do with physical deliverance from some kind of sickness or danger or uh, you know, problem. Uh, but of course, it does often, about 42% or so of the time, refer to deliverance from eternal damnation or uh, deliverance unto eternal life. So when we use the word saved in English, especially in a Christian context, most of the time we, we're talking about eternal life. How can a person have eternal life? So redemption is part of the salvation process. Jesus had to pay the price in order for us to have any hope of being saved, but it's not a synonym for saved. You People have been redeemed in the sense that the price has been paid, but again, if they don't receive that payment personally by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone, uh, then they are no better off. So I hope that helps answer that question. Uh, let's move on to the next one here. This is a question about the extreme weather. Uh, this person is referencing the weather in Colorado, which we've certainly had our share of it, as you know if you've been listening to our podcast. Uh, and they wanted to know, does any of this have to do with the Luciferian geoengineering program? Absolutely it does. I've written about this at length in a couple of books, uh, mainly most recently in volume one of my Spirit of the Antichrist series. By the way, if you're new to the Not By Works Ministries podcast, uh, I encourage you to go to spiritoftheantichrist.org spiritoftheantichrist.org. And there you'll learn about my two most recent uh, books uh, as uh, we talk a lot about the Luciferian conspiracy and how things are unfolding here on earth to try to usher in the satanic one world system. Uh, but I have a whole chapter in volume one there that you can see as you read the table of context on that contents on that website that deals with geoengineering. Geoengineering is the intentional tinkering with the planet, with the ecosystem, spraying things uh, uh, in the air. And I tell you what, there is no shortage of, you know, chemicals and, you know, de you know detrimental, dangerous substances uh, that is being sprayed in, in the air, if you just look up. Uh, and I've talked about this recently in my uh, Tuesday night prophecy night. We did a whole episode of that early on about how uh, the you know stage is being set using this geoengineering. So there's no question. Historically, I've documented this in the book going back decades, going back to, to even uh, before the Vietnam War and during the Vietnam War. They can manipulate the weather. They can control hurricanes. They can steer them. They can create earthquakes. Uh, they can uh, create rain easily. They can make it rain and make it drought. have a drought. They can create fires. Uh, and uh, to what end, you might ask? Well, you'll have to read my book to give, I give some of the answers in there uh, to that. But in general, it's part of a depopulation program that the Luciferians are uh, hard at work trying to, uh, you know, to push here on earth. Here's another biblical question uh, about 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse uh, 5. Great Question. I love questions that deal with sometimes difficult passages of Scripture. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen five. Paul says this. And by the way, coincidentally, I'm going to be addressing this verse, and it is a coincidence. I didn't realize till I got up this morning and started looking through these questions that someone had asked about this question. But I'm going to be dealing with Second Corinthians thirteen five as part of my message in Nehemiah on Saturday on Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel. So uh, you can listen to. 
this answer in more detail at that time. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13:5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So uh, this is a sanctification passage, not an, a justification passage. Paul is not saying that we should examine ourselves to see if we are really a Christian. In fact, the Bible never tells us to look at our behavior uh, as a test to see whether or not we're going to heaven. Our hope of heaven is based upon the empirical promise of Jesus Christ, who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So we don't look to our behavior to confirm whether we're a Christian. If we did that, we would doubt our salvation every day because we sin every day. We still have a sin nature, that fleshly nature that, that leads us uh, you know, to do bad things. Uh, the goal of the Christian life as a believer uh, is to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. Paul describes that struggle in Galatians chapter 5 and also Ephesians 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and other passages. So uh, when he's saying here, examine yourselves to, pe- to see if you're in the faith, he's, he's hearkening back to something he told them earlier in this same letter when he said that you should walk by faith. And so one thing we do want to ask ourselves regularly is, am I living by faith? Am I walking in the faith right now? In this moment, am I in faith? Not am I a Christian, am I in faith? And when he says that you might be disqualified, the word disqualified, which Paul uh, also applies to himself at times, does not mean unsaved or go to hell. It means, uh, it's the Greek word adakimas. It means to, to fail the test. Dakimas is to pass the test or to be approved. Adakimas, the, ne- the negator right there at the beginning, and the, the negative uh, prefix, adakimas means to fail the test or you've not passed the test. When we're not walking by faith, when we're living in the flesh, walking by sight, we've failed the test. We're not going to be rewarded for that. We're not going to be blessed for that. James says, blessed is the one who not only reads the word, but does the word of God. And so we want to walk by faith, trusting God's word, living it out in our lives. So this passage, contrary to what a lot of Bible teachers suggest, who just really haven't studied it, uh, I don't believe, you know, accurately and in context, is not telling us to look at your behavior. And if there's sin in your life, you're probably going to hell. Absolutely not. We are not saved by works. That's what our ministry, NBW, stands for. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, Titus 3.5. And so 2 Corinthians 13.5 is a great sanctification passage. It teaches us how to make sure we're walking with the Lord. We ought to every day examine our uh, heart and see are we trusting God because we're saved by faith at a one-time moment in time when faith meets the gospel, as I said earlier. Uh, We trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation, but we also live out our Christian life by faith. And uh, it's just such a beautiful thing to see believers walking by faith. So thanks for that question. Hopefully that helps uh, clarify it. And by the way, I might just add, because I'm so, this is such an urgent issue to me. If you're prone to looking at your life and examining your life to see if you're really a Christian, then you're going to live a defeated life of this vicious cycle of always doubting your salvation. Rest in the promise of Christ. He gave you eternal life the moment you believed the gospel, period, end of story. If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. You cannot lose it. Uh, But if you want to heed the warning of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 13.5, then yeah, examine to see how strong is your faith. Are you walking by faith? But stop looking at your behavior as a test as to whether or not you're going to heaven. Uh, Here's a question about 
let's see, demons and angels, uh, demons and angels during the millennial phase of the kingdom, and they want to know since Satan's going to be bound up in prison for that thousand years, will his minions, the demons, also uh, be uh, bound up? So the Bible doesn't give us a lot of explicit information on that, but I can tell you that uh, I the, the text clearly says Satan will be bound up, but that doesn't mean that he is completely powerless. I believe he will still have at his disposal his fallen angels and other evil uh, celestial beings at his disposal, including Nephilim, for example, and they will be out there uh, doing their best to try to deceive people. Uh, but the millennial uh, time uh, on earth, the kingdom uh, on, on the old earth, that thousand years that's spoken about in Revelation 20, will be a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice. Jesus himself will be on the throne, and yet as people who survived the tribulation and were believers and enter the kingdom at the beginning, as they uh, uh, have uh, you know children and, and more children are born in their physical bodies, those children, like every human being, will need to trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. As they grow up, some of them will reject the gospel, amazingly. Uh, even in the most idyllic of, of circumstances, they will still reject the gospel. And those people will be, therefore, uh, influenced by these evil spirits that I think are going to be still under Satan's control, even though he himself is bound up. The analogy I've used in the past is, is one of a mob boss. You know, we all have watched enough movies and television series to know that even if the, the mob boss is put in prison, he can still run the family from prison and uh, do a pretty good job at it. And so I think Satan's still going to have some limited powers, and so will his uh, you know, demonic beings. Um, here's a question about the movie Sound of Freedom. And uh, this person, I really appreciate the email because you can tell they're awake and they're doing their best to try to, as we all should, interpret news items and, and through the lens of Scripture and ultimately uh, kind of see how that might relate to the Luciferian agenda. Uh, but they're pointing out some of the negative things about the background of this uh, Sound of Freedom movie. First of all, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to see it. Um, I have been exposing the dark underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child sacrifice, child sex trafficking, and those types of things for almost 20 years now. I have a chapter in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, all about it, Chapter 13. It's a, it's a very difficult chapter to read and was extremely difficult to write. I touch on it in other messages. I touched on it in my message in Orlando this spring called Bloodlust exposing the Luciferian depopulation agenda. Uh, that podcast is still available out there. Um, I've been talking about this forever. I, I mean, you know, we, I, I'm so thankful this movie came out to kind of awaken a lot of people to it. I saw a newsletter from a, a, a colleague who was talking about Sound of Freedom, and he said, oh, I'd never heard any of this stuff. And I just had to resist the urge to pick up the phone and call him and say, well, yes, you have, because you and I have talked about it. But anyway, uh, it's, it is reality. You know, I've talked about the Franklin cover-up, which was a big part of that. I've talked about uh, Transformation of America uh, by uh, uh, Kathy O'Brien, who was an MK Ultra survivor, she and her mom. Uh, and this has been going on really all the way back to ancient times, but it's, it's very much happening right here in America 
But this person in the email was concerned that, you know, some of the funding behind it came from the Mormon church and that perhaps even Jim Caviezel, who's the star in the movie, uh, he plays the part of Tim Ballard, uh, that maybe he might have been, uh, you know, giving some Masonic symbols and, and satanic signs and stuff. Look, I, I don't know. I, I, I've never spoken to Jim Caviezel personally. I hope he's a believer. Uh, but that was beside the point of this movie. Uh, you know, there are a lot of books that you that I recommend that you read that don't always uh, get the gospel right and that aren't written from a Christian perspective and may, may not even be written by believers, but yet because they introduce you to information that is factual and helpful, uh, they're worthwhile. And so as I, one of the things I learned early on in studying the Luciferian conspiracy is I read books by people I never would have read before. When I was asleep, I was a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, conservative, right-wing, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, sycophant, who never had any use for anything other than something that toted the official party line of conservatism. And therefore, I missed out on a lot of information because the media is controlled, the publishing industry is controlled. So if you, you got to read books written by alternative publishing companies that expose a lot of the lies. Like, for example, one that just comes to mind, uh, as I'm uh, talking here, is uh, books by uh, uh, Baker. I forget his first name. I think it was James Baker. Um, anyway, not doesn't appear to be a believer. He was kind of a progressive. Uh, or also Webster Tarpley is another one. Very much a, 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 a you know unbeliever, as best I can tell from his own testimony, and certainly liberal in his worldview. And yet an incredible researcher who gave a lot of factual information exposing some of the dark side of the Bush dynasty. So those are the kind of things that I think are important. So my uh, recommendation of this film is in no way recommending you know, maybe some of the bad actors that are behind it. Uh, but I do know that it has awakened a lot of people to the reality of this uh, issue. Now, the the uh, <coughs> the writer in this email suggests that maybe this could have a ulterior motive of trying to scare families into chipping their children. Uh, I don't, I mean, certainly I think they're trying to do that, and they will continue to do that in other ways, uh, I, but I don't see that as the overarching purpose of this uh, film. There were too many, uh, you know, factual things exposed in the film that served to, as a detriment to the Luciferians for them, I think, to have used it uh, in that way. I, don't get me wrong. I think they're pushing, uh, chipping your children and those types of things. Um, but I don't, I just, I just think the movie uh, actually helped awaken people to this dark underworld coming out of Hollywood and Washington, D.C. Uh, by the way, if you've watched the movie, you notice that they tried to center it there in Columbia. It's based on a true story, and that's where the, the story takes place. But I don't want anyone to get the impression that this is just you know some problem that's happening in other countries or in third world countries or something like that. It is a serious problem, and it is absolutely happening uh, right here in America. In fact, America is really the tip of the spear of it. Uh, here's a question someone asked about, uh, they, they said they heard uh, Randy and me talk about uh, different places to get prescriptions, uh, and could I re repeat that? Yeah, it's been a while since we talked about it, but Jace Medical, J-A-S-E, and um, the other one was, oh, I can't remember, uh, oh yeah, Duration Health. We've ordered from both of those companies, Duration Health and Jace 
Medical, J-A-S-E, are great alternative places to go uh, to get prescriptions. You do a, a simple video meeting with a doctor, uh, telemed type thing, and then you get a prescription. It comes directly to your house in a regular prescription bottle with the, just like you got it from Walgreens or something. And it's a great way to stock up on antibiotics and other medicines that you might need. So I encourage you uh, to check that out. Uh, so here's a question from someone asking uh, on behalf of someone else uh, who is a Jewish friend. Um, and they asked several questions about the history of Judaism, uh, which, of course, we get straight from Scripture. First question is, are we, the Jews, waiting for a human-like Savior in the form of a deity? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, most Jews, especially today, have long ago forgotten and forsaken that promise of God, but God's Word absolutely promises in Daniel that one like the Son of Man, meaning he's God, but he comes in human form, is going to come, and he's going to take the throne of David forever. All of the Old Testament prophets speak about this. The father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, uh, you know, was given an unconditional promise that ultimately his seed would be the savior of the world and would set up a kingdom that can never be destroyed. And, and that seed, the New Testament tells us, is Jesus Christ himself ultimately. And uh, so there's no question that the Jews will get uh, a kingdom, and it will be ruled by God in the flesh. Um, and next question from this uh, person was about why, if God is all powerful, would the Savior be human-like? Well, that's a great question. It had to be. He had to be human-like because uh, you know the the penalty for sin is death. And when humanity sinned, humanity had to die. Somebody had to pay the price. And so Jesus Christ, as the only perfect human being, the only human being that ever walked the earth who never sinned, took the sins of the whole world upon his shoulder and paid the penalty for that sin. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. John 3.16, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has everlasting life. And so Jesus satisfied God's wrath against mankind when he died on the cross. That's what propitiation means, to satisfy the wrath of God. And so he had to be human because, uh, uh, you know, every sacrifice has to be chosen among men. And Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. As John the Baptist announced, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next question is, why does God need a representative? Well, he doesn't need a representative today. We have unmitigated access directly to God. We can march right into the throne room in heaven because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He rent that veil in two, opening up access to the Holy of Holies. Now, in God's divine design for a period of time in Jewish history, they went through human mediators, the priests, uh, the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. But uh, today we don't have to do that. Uh, and Jesus Christ is not so much God's representative. He is God himself, God in the flesh. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so Jesus is God. He said himself, I and my Father are one, John 10, verse 30. And then uh, he said, what action is he going to take to save us? Well, that's a great question. He's already taken that action when he walked up the Via Dolorosa died a cruel death, having been scourged, crowned with thorns, and then hung on a cross, 
placed in a borrowed tomb, and then on the third day he arose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, uh, and therefore nobody else has to die eternally and spend eternity in hell. And I've said many times that if you are born only once, you will have to die twice. If the only birth you've ever experienced is physical birth from your mother's womb, uh, then when you die, you'll die not only physically someday when you go the way of all flesh, but there is a second death that awaits you, and that's an eternal death in a literal place of torment called hell. But the good news is if you are born twice, if you are born twice, you only have to die once because there is a second birth that Jesus told Nicodemus about, a leading Jewish teacher of his day who met with Jesus by night and asked him some poignant questions. And Jesus told Nicodemus, that you have to be born from above. You have to have a second birth. And you get that by trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. He goes on to say in the verse that I just quoted uh, to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. And so that's the second birth. And if you experience the second birth, then you'll never uh, have to experience the second death. If you're born twice, you only have to die once. You may die physically, but you know death for a believer, death for someone who's trusted in Christ, is simply the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. In an instant, in a millisecond, when you die, you pass into the presence of our Savior. The Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But that's only true for those who have experienced the second uh, birth. And uh, so I hope uh, that this listener gets the you know questions that I just answered back to his friend, and uh, hopefully he will uh, recognize his need uh, for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior. The Bible tells us in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And then another question from this same a listener, another great question, in fact, at what point after the birth of the church was the rapture imminent? And he references here uh, Peter's, uh, the, the statement in uh, Peter about, uh, I mean, in, in uh, John's uh, gospel about uh, Peter being told he would live to a, a ripe old uh, age. And so how could the rapture be imminent? Well, let's break this down. Imminency just means could happen at any time. Uh, the New Testament clearly teaches that the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. It doesn't, nothing has to happen before it. And yet, uh, you know, Jesus promised Peter, this was after the resurrection when he was having that very uh, touching conversation uh, with Jesus. And uh, he, he explains uh, to Peter, let me call it up on my... Uh, computer here. He says uh, to Peter, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And it's a prophecy that Peter was going to die by Roman crucifixion. And indeed he did. We know that from the early church fathers like Eusebius and others that Peter was hung on a cross. And so that's really what Jesus was saying there. But by implication, he's suggesting that Peter is going to die at an old age. And so if that's the case, how could the rapture have ha happened when Peter was younger? So a couple of points, and this gets a little bit complex uh, theologically, but I'll do my best to try to uh, explain it uh, as simply as I can. Uh, 
That statement that Jesus gave to Peter, of course, happened in 33 AD. It was a basically a private conversation. The other disciples were there, but it was mainly between Jesus and Peter. And Peter was an apostle. Jesus is the Son of God. And he can make statements like that that uh, you know, are sort of exceptions to other general uh, principles that we find in Scripture. So uh, we see a lot of examples of that that are special case things, especially during the apostolic age, that are not normative for today. So uh, to the extent that nobody else at that time was around uh, to hear that, it really, you know, the only one that really would have known that he was going to live to potentially a ripe old age based on what Jesus said. And again, the point of Jesus' statement was just the manner in which Peter was going to be martyred. It wasn't so much about the age that he was going to die at, but he does say that, and we take the Bible uh, literally. Um, but other people weren't around. It was mainly just a message for uh, Peter. Now, fast forward, you know, three or four decades to when John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded this conversation, which we just read from John chapter 21. Well, that was roughly 70 AD. It's slightly before 70 AD. So by then, Peter would have been about 70 years old, give or take. So he was already an old man at that point. And so for the church and those of us for the last 2,000 years who have been reading this inspired uh, scripture, uh, it doesn't cause any problems whatsoever because uh, Peter did, in fact, die at an old age, and it was already old when that promise was revealed to us in the written pages of Scripture. So I uh, hope that helps clarify that question about imminency. It's a great question, uh, and, and I hope uh, I helped explain the question adequately enough. But what we can rest assured of today is that the Bible is emphatically clear that the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. There is nothing that must happen before the rapture happens. It could happen uh, today. So I think I'm going to stop there just because we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I had more questions uh, before me to answer, but um, uh, be patient. If I haven't gotten to your question yet, we've, we've queued them up, and we will get to more of these episodes uh, in uh, the coming weeks. But until then, uh, thanks for listening. Don't forget, later today, I want to encourage you to tune in to the Not By Works podcast once more for my conversation with Dr. Thomas Ice about debunking uh, lies about the rapture. Uh, and so until then, have a great rest of the day, and we will uh, talk again soon. God bless you, everyone.